And I think that if we have in our in our interests a common interest in trying to withstand uh, the, the ravages of climate change, if we can find a way to select de desirable traits that produce a plant that does not need as much attention as, as older varieties, that is better able to withstand um, the, the environmental effects that are coming away, I think that's, that's going to serve us all very well. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 11 of Fireside Chats with Aaron. I'm your host, Aaron Gowerluck. As Executive Director of the Grain Growers of Canada, I started this podcast to serve as a forum for real conversations with industry influencers and policymakers. Today, my guest is the Member of Parliament for Cowich and Malahat Langford, Alistair McGregor. Mr. McGregor was first elected in 2015 and serves as the new Democratic Party critic for agriculture and for rural economic development. This time last week, Alistair, I was worried that we weren't going to be able to have this conversation as it looked like we were on the brink of an election, but thankfully that was averted. So thank you very much for stopping by for a fireside chat. Well, it's great to see you again, Erin, and thank you so much for this opportunity. Let's dive right in, shall we? Sure. Let's start with a very timely and important topic for grain grower members and quite frankly for farmers across the country. The Ag Minister's Federal, Provincial and Territorial meeting will take place at the end of this month on November 27th and the entire sector is hoping for meaningful changes to the Agri-Stability Program as a result of their meeting. As a member of the House of Commons Agriculture Committee, you pushed the committee to do a study to reassess Canada's business risk management programs and we thank you for that. The results of this study have been delayed, unfortunately, by COVID and by prorogation. But it looks like they may be ready soon, hopefully before the FPT meeting at the end of next month. Can you tell us a bit about what you've learned during this study and what your party's stance is on changes to agri-stability and perhaps what recommendations you think the committee might be making to government based on the report? Yeah, excellent question. As you know, Aaron, uh, the subject of BRMs has been a longstanding issue even before COVID, but it was certainly put on the spotlight by many farms during uh, during the crisis. And of course, that's continuing to this day. Um, I was really happy to see uh, my colleagues around the Agriculture Committee uh, join with me and prioritize this study. Um, and it was great to see that cross-party collaboration. We had some really fantastic witness testimony uh, in February and March. And then, of course, COVID hit and our committee did have to switch gears a bit. But, you know, there was a really uh, a concurrent theme even amongst the COVID testimony because we had a lot of producers from many different sectors talk about the trials and tribulations they were going through and how inadequate the existing BRM framework was in helping them deal with this cataclysmic crisis that so many were facing. So it, it was really great to see that testimony. It's been very valuable. Of course, you're right. Um, the, the, un, the other unfortunate thing that happened was prorogation, because as you may know, uh, in August, our committee was about to start looking at the draft report uh, that was based on all of that witness testimony. And when prorogation happened, our, our committee essentially ceased to exist. So we, we lost about six to seven weeks of work uh, from that one action uh, and because we really were working under a timeline of trying to get this report through uh, with its recommendations well in advance of the FPT meeting, which now, of course, has been uh, backdated to November. Um, I can't really, you know, break with parliamentary privilege because the, the report is still in its draft uh, form. But what I will say is that I think you'll see a report and you'll see recommendations that closely mirror 
the, the testimony that we heard at committee and, and in particular with regard to agri-stability, there was near unanimous recommendations right across the board. And in fact, um, you know, right after prorogation, I took the opportunity as the NDP's agriculture critic to write a direct letter to Minister Bebo. In that letter, I specifically referenced, um, you know, moving the target to 85%, uh, increasing the cap and making sure that we were getting rid of the reference margin limits. So uh, from my perspective, I support moving those amendments to the agri-stability program. And I think you'll see our committee's report reflect witness testimony quite carefully. Right now, we're, we're just trying uh, really hard to get that report completed so that we have something to present to the minister. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much for your letter to the minister. And yes, I, I think that never before have we seen, certainly not on business risk management, the sector so completely united on one particular set of asks, which is very nice to see. Yes. On the topic of your parliamentary functions, there is currently a private member's bill, Bill C-206, which is an act to amend the Greenhouse uh, the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act that will be debated soon. Mm -hmm. This act seeks to exempt the propane and natural gas that is used for grain drying from the carbon tax. Now, the purpose of this tax, of course, is to encourage a transition away from fossil fuels to a different technology in order to reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. But in the case of dry grain drying, as you well know, because we've discussed this before, the technology simply doesn't exist, and there therefore many farmers see the tax as simply being punitive. I know your party supports a price on carbon, but given the policy and it, the fact that it's unable to achieve its intended objective in this particular context, can we expect your party to support Bill C-206 at second reading? Yeah, uh, well, you know, first of all, I'd like to congratulate uh, Philip Lawrence. You know, he's a conservative member of parliament uh, that I've gotten to know, and uh, I really respect him as an individual. And I, you know, I'd like to acknowledge the work that he's put into bringing this bill forward. And, you know, on this very issue, I, I also wrote a letter to the minister uh, with respect to the, the trials that farmers were going through with the costs of drying their grain back in February. And, uh, you know, we did reference in that particular letter that we'd like to see the minister consider this as a policy because of the extremely wet conditions that farmers had gone through. And you're very right to point out, Aaron, right now farmers do not have an alternative to efficiently dry their grain. It, it does require natural gas. It does require propane. And, you know, my, my caucus has not yet had the opportunity to discuss the bill, but I think based on the fact that I've written a letter on this subject, uh, but also there is precedent, right? If, if you look at my home province of British Columbia, uh, propane in particular is subject to exemption from the motor fuel tax if it's used by a qualifying farmer for farm purposes. So I think there is a recognition uh, already in some provincial jurisdictions that, you know, propane can belong in the same categories as marked fuels like diesel and gasoline. And, and I think it, there's a strong argument to be made, especially if there is no current viable alternative. Uh, both you and I know the, the struggles that farmers go through just through the regular routine of their business. They work very hard, but they also work in a business that throws up the unexpected towards them. And if you, if you, and we're going to see these events increase with climate change, particularly the flooding and drought conditions. So, yes, I'm in favor of recommending to caucus that we, we, um, you know, pursue this option. Uh, I'm on the record already with a public letter from February. So, I'd like to see us uh, help farmers through the trying times that we know will are bound to happen again. Thank you. I remember that letter. Thank you, Alistair. 
In a few weeks from now, in mid-November, we will hold our Grain Week uh, Advocacy Days virtually this year in light of the pandemic. During that time, we're going to be highlighting three areas of priority for our grower members. And the first is innovation. We, will, we view this as being critical to ensuring the continued growth of our sector, but also in contributing to the post-pandemic recovery. So I have a couple of questions related to innovation for you. First, at a time when the government is spending well into a deficit position, we worry about a lack of investment in our sector, and specifically decreased support for agriculture research. What is your view on government investment into research and to the development of new varieties? Yeah, great question. You know, I, last year I had the opportunity to visit my uh, friend and colleague Richard Cannings, who who represents South Okanagan West Kootenay, and just on the outskirts of his riding, uh, there's an amazing agricultural research station in Summerland, uh, run by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and he arranged for me to come and uh, tour the facility, speak with all of the scientists there. And I, I'm a big believer in, in having that strong public research sector. I think, you know, in maybe in recent years, we've probably seen the pendulum swing too far uh, towards the private side of things. And, you know, we, we of course want to see that private interest and investment into some of this stuff, but we also want to have a strong publicly funded sector so that, you know, all farmers, all Canadian farmers can benefit from the research that they're doing. And in particular, you know, in the Summerland Research Centre, uh, they are heavily, uh, you know, researching into different uh, varieties of apples. They're doing a lot of research for the grape sector. And I know that's that's not grains and oil seeds, but the research that they are doing can be applied uh, right across the country. Um, they are always looking at strengthening um, the strains, the varieties that we have to deal with the constant barrage of pests that we're receiving. I was amazed actually when I was listening to the statistics of the different pests that they have to deal with invading our country each and every year. And, and so having the strong, the strong varieties available through that publicly funded research is incredibly important. It's going to allow us uh, to withstand the challenges that are coming our way. Under the pillar of innovation, we will also be advocating for modernization to our regulatory system in order to enable innovation in plant breeding and to encourage some of those investments from the private sector that will benefit farmers, consumers and the environment. During the last election, you made a statement which I found very interesting. It was during the Canadian Federation of Agriculture's Ag Leaders debate in which you did very well. You indicated that you don't support GMOs, but you do support gene editing technology. Can you expand perhaps on those comments and talk a bit about how you think that the government could be enabling investments in private breeding and in plant breeding innovation, such as gene editing? Yes, absolutely. I remember that segment well. I believe that was during the rapid fire section where um, we were posed a question and we were only allowed a yes or no answer initially and then given 30, sec 30 seconds to expand. So. My, my initial answer on the GMO question, I think, was related to concerns I've heard from constituents about uh, them wanting to make informed choices. So I think it was tied more to the, the labeling issue. People wanted to make those informed choices about, you know, whether to consume GMO foods or not. Uh, there have also been concerns uh, raised about, you know, certain GMO foods making it better for, for pesticide use and so on. And, and I know there's, there's a, a conversation on that. I think why I differed on gene editing is because I think gene editing 
um, in, in trying to select desirable traits that are already hidden in the genetic code of, of certain varieties, whether they are plants or animals. Farmers have been doing that for thousands of years, and, and this is simply speeding the process up. So, you know, farmers have always looked for those beneficial traits in plants or animals, trying to find a, a bloodline that leads to bigger beef cattle, finding uh, a wheat that is better able to, to grow roots in, in conditions that are not otherwise favorable to it, to, to withstand drought, to withstand uh, flooding. And I think that's the real promise. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to find sort of that bridge between conventional farming and, and organic farming. And I think that if we have in our, in our interest, a common interest in trying to withstand uh, the, the ravages of climate change, if we can find a way to select de desirable traits that produce a plant that does not need as much attention as, as older varieties, that is better able to withstand um, the, the environmental effects that are coming away, I think that's, that's gonna serve us all very well. So that's why I, I, I think I've sort of differentiated myself between the two. And I think, you know, if I remember correctly, going back uh, to the previous parliament, um, when we were doing our study into technology and innovation in the agriculture sector, we even had some uh, of the leading researchers from across Canada acknowledge problems with using the term GMO. They, they, they knew it was a really loaded term, and that's why they were really excited about the, the CRISPR technology, the gene editing, and, and the promise that it may in fact yield for us. The second focus for our Grain Week Advocacy Week is going to be sustainability. As you know, the agriculture sector, our entire industry, has made great strides in reducing emissions and inputs and continuing to grow more food without expanding our land base. From things like conservation tillage to for nutrient management, sustainability is at the core of everything Canadian farmers do. Canadian farmers also make significant investments in upgrading their machinery to lower emission engines, to embracing GPS and variable, variable rate technologies. Learning and adopting these practices and new technologies comes at a high cost to farmers. And that's why we were heartened to hear in the recent throne speech that the government gave their plan to recognize farmers and ranchers as key partners in the fight against climate change. That said, recent interactions between our members and government of late have not necessarily reflected the sentiment. So my question to you is, how would an NDP government recognize farmers for their sustainability efforts? Yeah, a great question. I think, you know, you know, probably you could look uh, to, to our BC NDP government uh, here in, in British Columbia. I, I know Minister Lana Popham quite well, and I, I know in the recent election they made a commitment uh, to, to encouraging sustainability efforts, uh, recognizing the hard work that farmers are already doing. You know, I, as a personal example, Aaron, um, I took a trip uh, to the interior a couple of months ago to, to the Okanagan area. I was invited by by the uh, British Columbia Cattlemen's Association to go and tour uh, two ranches that had won sustainability awards. And it was really quite in, uh, you know, um, educational for me to actually speak to the ranchers themselves, 
take a tour of their property and show, you know, how they were moving their cattle around uh, and how, you know, really a, a healthy ecosystem depends on that natural interaction between plants and animals. And so if you want to have those healthy grazing grasslands, you actually do need to have regular movement of cattle coming through it. And, and it, in fact, they've done studies on, on, on how well-managed grasslands actually uh, their carbon sequestration potential is huge. I, you know, I think a personal interest uh, area of mine in agriculture has always been related to, to soil health and, and the incredible ability that well-managed soil has to be one of our greatest weapons against climate change. And I think, you know, it was really encouraging to see that sort of one sentence in the throne speech. I, I'm definitely learning, uh, or I'm, I, I want to learn more details about what that actually entails, but I have seen studies out there where, you know, well a well-managed hectare soil is able to sequester, you know, in the neighborhood of 40 tons of carbon per year. So this, I think, you know, trying to get out of the bun fight that has existed over the carbon tax, I think a, a safer sort of middle ground is, is probably in fact recognizing the strong efforts that farmers already are making and, and the potential that the sector as a whole uh, has in, in sequestering carbon. So that, that's a real interest of mine. And uh, I think we're, we're right to start trying to recognize those efforts. And it is a real interest of ours in our pursuit of this definition, what this definition of recognition means. Mm -hmm. The third focus, and this will come as no surprise for, for Grain Week, uh, certainly for our members, uh, will be international trade. Uh, grain and oilseed farmers in Canada rely on international export markets, and we want to see the maximization of, of two agreements in particular, looking at the Canadian economic uh, trade agreement that exists between Canada and the European Union, as well as the CPTPP. While Canada has negotiated away tariffs uh, through free trade agreements like this, agriculture experts are experiencing new non-tariff trade barriers, which are limiting our opportunities. Examples of these include, but are certainly not limited to, the implementation of country of origin labeling requirements on, in Italy on pasta products and Vietnam's enforcement of zero tolerance for the presence of thistle seeds in grain shipments, among others. But with an increase in global protectionism, non-tariff trade barriers are becoming increasingly common. How can the government, in your view, better maximize the value of Canada's current trade deals? Uh, that is an extremely tough question to answer, but also I think an important one to pose. You know, I, I've always found in, in on the Agriculture Committee, we seem to intersect uh, with two other committees the most. Uh, one is health, of course, because of its reliance with uh, the, the CFIA, but also international trade because, uh, you know, Canada is an exporting country. We produce far more food uh, in this country uh, than our population can consume. And in fact, we, we are one of the leading exporters of agriculture uh, products uh, around the world. And you're right, um, you know, the, the current trade climate is certainly full of choppy waters. And it's, it's difficult because this, is, this really requires uh, good faith negotiations between nation states and nation states throughout history have always excelled in pursuing their own self-interest. So I think the key for Canada going forward is to really um, try and, and focus our efforts on, on like-minded countries, um, especially ones that can perhaps act as our allies when, when we're dealing with, with countries like China, for example, which uh, very much tie their trade policy to their national interests and um, 
They, they are a rising power, but I think they're throwing their weight around a little bit too much these days. And, and so I think a successful trade policy on our part depends on finding those key allies around the world um, and, and trying our best in trade negotiations to, to really zero down on, on those irritants that have the potential of, of rising in the future. Because ultimately what we want to see, you know, uh, pure trade should just be s simply the removal of, of tariffs to, to allow the free movement of, of goods and services. And uh, when we start getting bogged down in, in for example, trying to find you know a, a little bit amount of, of thistle seed in a shipment or or Italy's um, qualms over our Durham wheat, uh, this this is you know quite detrimental to our sector. And I think it, it goes back on the good faith negotiations that we did enter into when we were trying to negotiate those trade deals in, in uh, the first place. Uh, as an example, you know, our sectors have already identified how CETA, because of what's going on in Italy, we're not reaping as many benefits as were originally promised when the trade deal was signed and then implemented. So, you know, I don't know if that's much of an answer for you, Aaron, or for, for your viewers. It's, it's a tough one to answer because we, we very much are at the mercy of other nation states pursuing their national self-interest. I agree. It's not an easy challenge, certainly, but I, I, I support your view that any opportunity we have to work with like-minded countries, right, globally, will only strengthen Canada's position as a middle power. Yeah. Let's talk for a moment about rural economic development. Uh, I know we don't need to explain to you the importance of having um, providing both broadband, internet in rural areas, as well as wireless connectivity across the countryside. The government recently made an announcement that they are going to expedite investments in rural connectivity, and we certainly hope to see the results of that commitment soon. That said, and recognizing that this is certainly a challenging problem to solve, how would you assess the progress that this government has made and how could government better achieve these goals in the near future? Yeah, no, great question. And, uh, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed having the rural economic development portfolio added to, to my, um, my responsibilities during this parliament. I think rural economic development and agriculture have, have always gone together quite well. And I know at the Agriculture Committee, we, we have heard repeatedly from uh, farmers and from individuals based in rural communities about how poor uh, the connectivity issues uh, are out there. Um, you know, how, how would I assess the, the, <laughs> the way the government's proceeded so far? I, I think we needed to have these changes implemented yesterday. Uh, COVID-19 has put into focus uh, just how poorly served so many of our rural communities are, because right now, uh, internet connectivity, um, it, it's, it's more than just a convenience. It's actually now um, an economic necessity because of the physical distancing requirements, because of the disruptions that we've had in our normal way of conducting business. I mean, you and I are conducting this interview uh, over Zoom right now. Uh, we're lucky to have stable internet connections to, to allow for that video conferencing, but so many communities don't have that. And, and if you go to uh, look at the, st the statistics, less than half of uh, households in, in rural communities have those high-speed internet connections. The statistics are even worse for Indigenous communities. And, and you know, I, I really have to sort of, uh, you know, pay homage to my colleague, Brian Massey. He's the Member of Parliament for Windsor West. Uh, he is our industry critic. He has spoken out on this issue uh, for a number of years. 
And I think one of the first things that we need to do is I think we need to declare uh, broadband and connectivity services as an essential service. And, and we really need to pony up the resources to, to get this done. If you look at the billions of dollars that the federal government has raked in over the years through spectrum auctions, uh, it's an incredible amount of money. And, and they've used that revenue to, to fund other programs. Uh, if, if we're even to use a fraction of the money that we have garnered out of those spectrum sales, I think we could very quickly find the budget to, to make this a reality for many, many Canadians. Um, you know, as I said, this should have been done yesterday. Uh, COVID-19 has put it into focus. Uh, but I think, you know, there is now a renewed and determined effort across the political spectrum at getting this done because, you know, every political party has MPs who represent rural areas uh, and we can all, you know, tell you a litany of complaints that we've heard from our constituents on this very issue. Thank you. I agree. And certainly COVID has shone a light on the need, uh, the importance of connectivity. Perhaps we can close our conversation today with, with, a, with a big picture question. You know, we often discuss the potential that the grains and oil seed sector has to help drive our nation's economic recovery and to sustain rural communities across the country. But action to enable doesn't always seem to follow. What is your vision for the agriculture industry in Canada? And if your party formed government, how would you ensure the continued growth of Canada's agriculture sector? Yeah, great question. The, you know, one thing I've learned since becoming the agriculture critic is just, uh, you know, how incredibly diverse uh, the sector is right across the country. We, we really are so fortunate uh, to, to have a landmass uh, that allows us to have the ability to, to grow all of this good food. And I think any kind of successful agriculture policy uh, has to be one that puts farmers uh, in the driver's seat and at the leading edge. You know, as, as we've alluded to in previous questions and answers, uh, farmers are leaders in, in trying to make sure that they have sustainable practices. They're probably the first ones that will tell you that the health of their animals, the health of their land is really key to making sure that their business is successful. I think, you know, going forward, we, we've always known that agriculture is one of the biggest um, drivers of our economy. I mean, some people might be surprised to, to see that statistic where one out of eight jobs is related to agriculture or agri-food. And I think going forward, as, as we look towards uh, getting our country on an economic recovery, agriculture is going to be a key part of that. And, and one of the reasons is that the common denominator that we all have as humans is that we all need to eat. Uh, what I would like to see going forward is maybe a, a, a little bit more of a focus on increasing resiliency in our local communities. You know, I think we've already uh, proven ourselves to be a powerhouse when it comes to agricultural exports, but we still uh, have this situation in Canada where despite uh, our ability to grow so much food, we still have so many communities that suffer from food insecurity. So I would really like to see efforts where uh, the government is, is maybe investing in funds like the local food infrastructure fund, uh, where we are, are maybe um, making sure that our processing capacity is not concentrated in one or two centers across the country, but that you know those communities uh, right across Canada have that ability to, to be resilient, to withstand future shocks, and I think that's going to be a, a key consideration going forward. I, I heard that term resiliency so many times during the COVID-19 
uh, hearings that our committee had. And, and I think there really is a renewed interest in how, how we build that local community resiliency. So uh, I'm, I'm excited by the, the potential that the sector has in leading our country uh, out of it, uh, out of the mess that we find ourselves in. And I think it's proven time and time again, if you look at our country's history, uh, of its ability to withstand shocks, but also lead the way way out. So it's it's uh, looking good, I think. I'm always optimistic. You are, and I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you very much, Alistair, for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule for you. We appreciate it. You're always available to engage with Green Grower members. And thanks for sharing your vision for Canada's agriculture sector. We hope to do the same when we do some outreach with you as part of Grains Week next month. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening to this special episode of Fireside Chats with Aaron. We will be back in two weeks time with another special guest. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date on all things GGC, please follow us on Twitter at Grain Growers or on Instagram at Canada's Grain Growers. Until then.